Well, good morning. My name is Ann Stewart. I'm class of 2008 and currently serve as Associate Vice President for Communication and Deputy to the President here at the seminary. This morning, it's my great privilege to welcome you to uh, this wonderful conversation about the Reformation with some of our most esteemed faculty members. Uh, today, we're live streaming this conversation, so we're also welcoming those who are watching all around the world. If you have a question for the panel this morning, I'd invite you to, uh, whether you're here or whether you're watching online, you can actually text your question to us at the number that's on this card here. It's 609-722-7309. Or you can submit your questions the old-fashioned way by actually writing on this piece of paper. Uh, and then if you'll send your questions to the edge of the aisles, we'll have people uh, walking around to collect them. So we hope that you will um, ask your questions early and often, and we will get to them as many as we can uh, a little bit later this morning. So now please join me in welcoming our panel and the president of Princeton Seminary, Dr. Craig Barnes. Good morning. On this year where we are joining Christians around the world and celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we've chosen to focus many of the events on this annual reunion around the theme of reform. What does it mean to be reformed and what does it mean to continue to be reformed? And we certainly want to focus some of our attention in this faculty panel to this question as Reformation pertains to theological education in general and to our seminary in particular. I'm joined by five of our faculty members. Unfortunately, Professor Migliori is down with a chest cold and is unable to join us this morning, but we are thrilled to have, just to my left, Professor Geddes Hansen, the Charlotte Newcomb Professor of Congregational Ministry Emeritus. Thank you. Elsie McKee, the Archbald Alexander Professor of Reformation Studies and the History of Worship. Peter Paris, the Elmer G. Hammerkhausen Professor of Christian Social Ethics Emeritus. <laughs> Carl Fried Froelich, the Benjamin B. Warfield Professor of Ecclesiastical History Emeritus. <laughs> and Ken Appled, the James Hastings Nichols Professor of Reformation History. Before we dive a little bit deeper into the Reformation themes, let's just talk about some changes that we've seen here at the seminary. Professor Hansen, uh, let's start with you. What was this seminary like when you first arrived, and what are some of the changes that you've seen since uh, being here? Uh, I came in 1966 as a uh, THD candidate but I'd spent 10 years in congregational ministry after having graduated from divinity school. So this was something of a culture shock for me. I had never been in a deliberately Presbyterian institution before. <laughs> I was not quite ready for that, but the, the, the obvious difference is the, the diversity 
in, in gender, in, uh, in skin color, in ethnic background, uh, as well as in religious orientation. When I came in 66, I dare say 90% of the students were uh, some variety of Presbyterian. Uh, now I dare say 50% uh, of the student body is not Presbyterian. I, uh, having come from a divinity school which was non-denominational, I, uh, I see that as an advantage. Um, that's about it. Uh, women, people of color, Princeton was always diverse internationally, but not so much diverse with regard to the various expressions of humanity within the borders of the United States, which was interesting. Dr. Paris, Dr. Farlick, the same question. What are some of the changes that you saw, either in our seminary or just in theological education in general during your career? Well, I, I came here in 1985, and I came here from Vanderbilt University Divinity School. and. Um, and I was struck immediately by the, well, for a long time, a lot of people, including people at Vanderbilt, thought that Princeton Theological Seminary was part of the university, uh, Princeton University. And a lot of people still think that <laughs> uh, around the country. And uh, so uh, it was my first experience in a, in, in a standalone denominational seminary, and I was very much impressed with the ecumenical history that the school had. And, uh, but uh, the diversity here within the campus was not very much, uh, generally. And so one of the first things that I wanted to do was to establish a connection with the African American Studies Program at the university. And so it took a couple of years for us to do that, to get a formal connection so that our students could, could uh, take some courses, up to about three courses, I think, um, at the university and get credit for their Master of Divinity uh, degrees. And so I was very happy to have that kind of relationship and for the seminary to, to really accommodate that kind of relationship. The other thing that I remember quite vividly is that uh, Geddes Hansen was the chair of the committee that brought me here. And, um, and he had been here for some time before I got here, and, uh, but yet everybody on campus constantly thought I was Geddes, <laughs> and, and they would confuse us. <laughs> I used to tell them, Paris has the mustache, Hanson has the beard. It's very simple. <laughs> yes. But it was a very accommodating um, uh, environment, and I appreciated that, because I was not Presbyterian myself, and still am not Presbyterian, but I am Baptist, which is I sort of squeak into the Reformation uh, ethos a little bit. <laughs> well, I came to uh, this place in 1968, uh, which was an exciting time in many ways, there was a great deal of awareness of social problems, of course. Uh, many people may not remember, well, the student generation now may not remember that actually one of the dear privileges in the fall, uh, namely 
the uh, uh, fall reading period was instituted just about the time when I came, not for leisure, but for people to go out and help voter registration in the South. The students went down there for that purpose, and that's why we decided as a faculty that we'll give them off this time and we would be active ourselves during that time. So, uh, you know, the seminary, yes, was a very different place at that time. Lots of students. We had very large classes at the time, which was, in a way, good and challenging, but it also uh, made it necessary to identify with smaller circles. For me, uh, one of the uh, great things was to come to this place from Drew, which was a Methodist uh, uh, seminary, and where we did not have the extent of the graduate program which we uh, have here. So it was particularly the seminars that were a very appealing thing uh, here. Uh, I uh, uh, do remember at that time that seminars, particularly PhD seminars, seminars were really quite challenging. Uh, we had uh, excellent students uh, here. And what also was new to many students was that the faculty no longer was all Presbyterian. Uh, shortly before my time, uh, the first uh, non-Presbyterian became a uh, full professor. Uh, early on, uh, that still goes uh, back to the time shortly before I came, uh, uh, teachers here had to convert to Presbyterianism if they want to be full professors. Charlie Fritsch, the Old Testament professor, was, of course, since the name shows it, he was from Pennsylvania Dutch background. He was a good Lutheran, but had to become a Presbyterian in order to become a full professor here. The first one who was not uh, was uh, actually a New Testament scholar who was a Lutheran, as I am. That was Bertel Gertner who went on to a greener or could one say drier pastures from here, namely became a bishop in Sweden, uh, where he came from. So that part of it uh, was very impressive to me, and it had a lot to do with the two presidents. I still knew Dr. Mackay, but I didn't know him very well because by my time already uh, uh, Jim McCord was the president. His openness toward developing ecumenical ties to open the doors of a pretty sticky Princeton, I think was one of the major features that uh, I enjoyed and I saw over the years that it grew. We added, during my time, a Roman Catholic faculty member. Since the time of, uh, uh, of that event, uh, well, that particular professor is retiring this year. Uh, things really have changed, and to me, they've changed the better. I know that I'm supposed to be moderating this panel, but I need to take just a personal moment to say that it was while sitting in Dr. Froelich's church history classes when I was a student here that I made the decision to pursue a PhD in the history of Christianity at Chicago because of his teaching. So he was a very... Very effective okay. teacher, it changed my life. One of the reasons why, um, uh, maybe one of the main reasons why alumni return to campus is to share memories, uh, to um, have a chance to hear some of the memories of their professors in particular. 
So we would love, just, uh, you've collected so many memories over the years here. What are some of the ones that really stand out to you as being very formative for you? Dr. Hansen. Formative, no. Um, uh, chastening, yes. I, I, I was doing my thing, as some of you who might have been in some of my classes. And I noticed there was a young man in the extreme right-hand back row, and uh, there was no apple face on his desk. But he was following, obviously, he was following along in a text, which was interesting. And I asked him what he was doing. And he said he had his father's notes from that course when I taught it 20 years ago. <laughs> and he reassured me that I was right on target. I was right on target. I went into the cafeteria that day for lunch, and I looked around, and it dawned on me that there were half a dozen people sitting in that room whose parents I had taught. And I hired me over to the administration building, went into the dean's office, and said, how do I start to retire? <laughs> Other chastening memories? <laughs> I, I, this is not a chastening one. I can try to find one. I beg your pardon for the quality of my voice. I'm dealing with a, a frog condition. Um, a delightful one. Of course, in uh, Reformation worship, uh, the pastor Craig Getty, Getty was sitting on the front row, and he was so excited. And after class each day, he would tell me what, that he had been taking home some of the liturgies that we have been studying. He'd been a pastor for 12 years. He was introducing them to their deacons, and their deacons were think, his deacons were thinking it was wonderful. And so every day when he came to class, I knew that he was collecting things for his church. And I was so tickled. Thank you, Reverend Craig Getty. Well, uh, I have two things I would mention as uh, standing out in my memory uh, for the uh, long experience with the, uh, my teaching here. One uh, that I really need to mention was the close connection I had with one colleague uh, in the history department who at the same time straddled the line to systematic theology. He always attended the meetings of the theology department, but he was a major member of the history department, and that created a problem uh, for some members of the faculty. You know, he should not uh, use this privilege, but it was Ed Dowie, and uh, Ed was quite a towering presence here on campus. For me, it was not quite as towering because uh, we had our offices next to each other, on Dickinson Street, which you know, later on was condemned as a place for faculty offices because it was not safe enough. Instead, it had to be used 
for a family, as if you know five professors uh, are more dangerous than a family with five kids running around. <laughs> well, no, so much about these wonderful offices we had over there. And Ed had the habit, as I did, to stay up late. Uh, so we often uh, were in the office at the late hours. And in the late hours, Ed uh, started having real questions. And uh, the questions always were theological. So he knocked on my door. Sometimes I did this uh, to return the favor. And we had still a long discussion right there. And at some point, we decided this stuff was important enough that other people should participate. So we had, at that time, some public debates here on campus. I was supposed to uh, represent the Lutheran standpoint, which had not been heard that much here. Uh, and Ed, of course, defended his tradition, which you all know. It's the Presbyterian, the Reformed uh, uh, tradition. We had wonderful times. And uh, in fact, those debates uh, drew crowds. Well, at the time, yes, uh, these were mainly student crowds, but no, that was great. A second experience I want to lift up was one of the classes I taught. I had the uh, thankless task of teaching medieval history. You know, who knows anything about the Middle Ages? Well, most of our students didn't. Uh, when we once had uh, on a test uh, the question, uh, uh, multiple choice, what Canossa is. Maybe some of you don't know it, but many of you will know Canossa 1077. That's this famous meeting of Emperor Henry IV and Matilda, uh, well, uh, who was the patron of the Pope. And there was a reconciliation between Emperor and Pope there. Well, among the three choices, one was Canossa, a special kind of Sicilian uh, sausage. <laughs> and lo and behold, of the 120 students in the class, three answered, that's what the right answer uh, was. So, you know, so much about uh, 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 history here. I taught a course on uh, Thomas Aquinas, which again was something not uh, uh, frequently uh, uh, happening here. And this was a very exciting time because I thought it would be a good idea to have every week a student group stage a medieval disputation. Medieval disputations are, were one of the major forms of teaching in the medieval universities. Uh, and they involved a magister, a master, who would put a question. And then there would be two disputants, one on the one side, the other one on the other. And finally, the teacher would give uh, the solution of the thing. Well, we had the most wonderful discussions there because students really went after it. We had some students from Southeast Asia, uh, from Myanmar, and uh, you know, when we got into ethics, they debated hotly a uh, question from Thomas Aquinas on political ethics. Now, that's teaching, which as a teacher, you learn from through students doing it. It was one of my joys, really, to enjoy things like that. That was one of the uh, most wonderful courses here at Princeton Seminary, a uh, course on Thomas Aquinas for a whole semester. Three credits. Thank you. Dr. Parrish, share a memory with us. The um, 
again on the ecumenical um, dimension of the school. Of, of the school. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm originally from Canada, and I did my undergraduate and Master of Divinity degrees in, in Canada. And there I worked for about six years before I went to PhD studies with the student Christian movement of Canada. And uh, each summer we would have a week-long conference there. And one summer we spent that conference with uh, Dr. M.M. M. Thomas uh, from Kerala in India. And, uh, and I was absolutely mesmerized uh, when he came here as a Mackay um, professor for a year, um, I think uh, Charlie Ryerson was very much influential in, 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 in causing that to happen. And, uh, and to, to, to have that connection again with such a, a, an important figure in the Christian church in India. Um, and he was a lay person and who refused uh, who said, well, not refuse, he said he was not called to be a, a clergy person, but called to be a lay person in the church there, and, uh, and went on to, to make an international reputation for himself in many ways. And then on, on top of that, we, we also had uh, Mercy Oduyuye, who came here, I think she came twice, two occasions, uh, in, in that chair, and Dr. Uh, Kwame Bidiako, uh, from Ghana, was here for another year. And, uh, and, and the, the, the rich experience of having the world church gathered here in that chair was very, very significant. Also, Gustavo uh, Gutierrez was here another year, and it was just wonderful for all of us, faculty and students alike, to experience him, who's virtually uh, the founding figure of liberation theology in Latin America and, 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 and the world at large. Um, I was also impressed by the way in which the school was able to enhance various dimensions of the seminar's experience by having a number of African-American distinguished um, professor uh, uh, preachers. Uh, um, uh, the, um, um, I'm trying to think of the person at Concord Baptist Church in uh, New York, uh, who was here for, uh, for Gardner Taylor. I'm sorry, Gardner Taylor. Gardner Taylor was here for, for several years. As were, uh, you know, he would come to, to teach a course uh, once uh, a year um, for several years. And several other people like him with his stature would be here, which enriched the experience again for, for all of us. Speaking of the World Church, uh, not only do we try to bring various scholars from the world here onto our campus to teach us, but I'm actually struck with how frequently our professors are traveling to different parts of the world. Yes. Uh, just last week, Professor Dennis Olson just returned from lecturing on the Reformation in Africa. And Professor Appled uh, just returned two weeks ago uh, from Korea. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, Ken. What was your experience like lecturing on the Reformation to the Korean church. Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was a, a fabulous experience. Um, it was short. The flight was almost as long as the time that I stayed there, I think, but it was, um, it's really a unique kind of pleasure, I think, to go to places outside of Europe and talk about the Reformation because, you know, we, we so often reduce the Reformation or think of it 
uh, in primarily European terms, and yet it really is a, a global event and has global significance. And there's something touching, I think, about seeing non-European cultures or churches outside of Europe uh, wrestling with the Reformation's legacy, what does it mean, and uh, what's its significance for our church. Um, so on, on that kind of intellectual level, it was very, uh, very stimulating and inspiring. And of course, on a personal level, it was wonderful. I mean, uh, extraordinary hospitality and, and kindness and generosity. Let's uh, turn a bit more towards um, questions of legacy from the Reformation. Professor McKee, uh, there, there must be many legacies, but what, what are one or two of the more uh, powerful legacies that are still shaping the church today that began through the Reformation? I think the first thing I would say is the priesthood of believers. It's obviously not invented by the Reformation, but it clearly is given its impetus there, and it has implications for everything that the Christians do. It includes the doors opening for uh, not only lay people, but women and children to express their engagement with the world, with the church, to have a vocation. I think as I was preparing for this, I was thinking that's probably the single most fruitful, uh, dangerous uh, legacy across the board because it applies not only to uh, Protestants but also to those from the Radical Reformation to many others. And it's affected the entire uh, world church. I think some of the fruit of that has been as I say, an openness to women's leadership, which was not there before. It's, it's gone up and down. Many women will tell you that, yes, the door opens and then it slams in their faces. But the principle remains that the priesthood of believers is a, an opening for all people to address God directly, it is not, as I sometimes say, a preacherhood of believers. Um, that is actually one place where there are splits. Uh, some of the radicals would say there is a preacherhood of believers, although I will notice that it's basically a preacherhood of male believers. <clears throat> it doesn't very often extend to the women. Uh, but there is a sense in which the opening of the door to the priesthood of believers also calls into question other, question, uh, other aspects of leadership which give more flexibility, shall we say, to the preacherhood of believers. And some of our wonderful African-American uh, women leaders through the ages uh, have shown very clearly that they understood themselves to be preachers, and lots of others have followed in their steps. Along those same line, that same line, I would say that the, um, the, the openness of the gospel to ordinary men and women um, really has had a tremendous impact on uh, African-American religion um, uh, from the days of slavery um, because of the freedom of the gospel uh, entrusted into the hands of ordinary people, 
uh, the church took formation uh, in concealed ways in the hush harbors of a slavery. And uh, 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 David George was such a person who was a slave when he um, formed a church in um, Savannah, Georgia uh, in the 1770s and then led a group of people with um, the British um, uh, who promised freedom to people who would, um, who would uh, join the British cause. Um, and, uh, and then after the Revolutionary War, um, he and about 500 people, largely from that congregation and vicinity, went to Nova Scotia. And uh, Nova Scotia is my home province, and started uh, the Baptist churches in Nova Scotia. And then, because of the way that they were treated rather badly there, uh, they eventually went with the British again to Sierra Leone and uh, founded the first Baptist churches in Sierra Leone, <laughs> um, uh, in Freetown there. So through one person who had been a slave, converted, to Christianity, he became the founder of the Baptist cause in the United States and, uh, and in Canada and in, uh, in Sierra Leone. And I think all of that is a part of the Reformation, the radical side of the Reformation as well. Right. <laughs> Professor Apple, the same question. What, what's a single legacy of the Reformation that is, continues to be formative for us? I'm not sure I can really boil it down to one. I was thinking about this as we uh, prepared for this panel <laughs> over the past few days, and um, I, this goes along with some of the reminiscences that, that we were talking about before. I think the biggest surprise for me coming here was the, um, when I look at the spectrum of Reformation courses that we teach, Elsie and I, together, uh, far and away the most popular one is the Radical Reformation. And that stunned me when I first realized this. I mean, that, that class gets twice as many students as our classes on Luther and Calvin, for example, uh, typically do. Perhaps your Calvin class is bigger than I'm doing justice to. <laughs> I apologize. But the, um, uh, and that says something. I think it goes along with, with the demographics of the students as well. Uh, there's so many more non-denominational students today who identify more with that trajectory of the Reformation. Um, and that was coming from Europe, where I'd been for 10 years before I, I uh, arrived here in 2007. Uh, that, was, that was stunning, because the, um, it reminds us, really, that America is much more uh, an heir to the Radical Reformation. These are the first um, people who come here, right, the uh, dissidents from, from Europe um, uh, who come here in the 17th century and, uh, and start to settle. And the first thing they want is freedom of, of religion and separation of church and state. Um, and that's part of the, the foundation, I think. It's, it's been obscured over the years uh, because of subsequent immigration uh, from state church uh, countries in, in Europe. But um, I, I find that astonishing. And it makes me reassess, really, what the Reformation is about, um, what its long-term legacies are, and, and the, the sort of voluntarism, choosing your church and choosing to commit yourself to a church is, is a big part of that that we don't see so much in, in the magisterial branch of the state churches, where you're born into a church. 
And so that, that voluntary commitment, uh, really giving your life to, to serving that church, whether you're ordained or a lay person, um, I, I think that's part of the spirit. And uh, we see that much more uh, clearly in this country, I think, than in, uh, certainly than back in Europe. But we also see it in a lot of other countries that don't have that state church kind of uh, legacy behind them. Dr. Hansen. I've been fortunate to be able to spend a good deal of time in international ecumenical venue and um, trying to figure out where people stand and why they stand there and what keeps them together. Well, the Roman Catholics obviously are, are bound by uh, allegiance to the magisterial authority, the teaching authority of the Bishop of Rome. And the Lutherans have the Augsburg Confession, and the Baptists have the Bible. <laughs> the, uh, the Anglicans are those who see the, the Archbishop of Canterbury as primus unto paris. What in the devil is it that makes the, 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 the Reformed people? The, and I, I decided that as I watched what went on in these ecumenical international, we hassle with one another. It's the idea of covenant, that we don't give up on one another. We argue, we are contentious. Reformed people are by definition contentious, and it's because they're crypto-Cyprianites. The unity of the church is important. I remember, I remember Dr. McCord saying at one time that schism is a greater sin than heresy. You don't render the body of Christ. And uh, it's been interesting watching that work out and not work out because it seems that some people feel that what the Reformation gave us was permission to split from the people we don't agree with. Now, that might be the case with some, but it's hardly the case within the so-called Reformed tradition in which the unity of the church is paramount. Now, I don't know what got me on that. I'm sure you said something that led me down that stream, so it's all your fault. That's why we have presidents. I knew there had to be a reason. <laughs> Dr. Froelich, you also spent much of your life talking about the Reformation. Uh, what, what do you think is an ongoing legacy of it? Well, there are a number of uh, things uh, I could say that. The first thing is that uh, what is a remaining heritage from the Reformation is a split. That we're not one anymore as the church was in the Middle Ages. Catholics always stress that that's the tragedy of the Reformation. Uh, they split the church. Luther split the church. Well, I need to remind you or anyone who says that, first of all, that he was kicked out. He did not leave. He always thought that he was a Catholic Christian and actually was representing the real church. So today, of course, we have a lot of interest 
in healing that breach. And we've come a far ways. Uh, the split itself may not be as much of a bane as many people think. The unification uh, of all churches may not be a real wonderful goal to pursue because there are other ways of looking at that heritage. My own mentor and teacher under whom I did my doctorate in Basel was Oskar Kuhlmann, one of the great ecumenists uh, of the previous uh, generation. His understanding always was that the uh, diversity which Christianity exhibits, exhibits nowadays goes back to the very early church. Read 1 Corinthians, and uh, you see that Paul already had some problem. He didn't want to lord it over people. No, no. He tried to say, well, you all belong because all of you have some, remember that word, charism. The diversity of denominations is that they bring all to the same kind of Christian witness, one thing, uh, namely the uh, common uh, uh, commitment uh, and their specific charism. I still think that's a very important uh, uh, way to look at it. Uh, reformed uh, people, of course, even in the Reformation time itself, were much more prone to be ecumenical, almost you know, by uh, uh, definition, because in the uh, 16th century, uh, when they declared they were not different from the Lutherans, they were protected in territories where actually the Lutherans uh, were accepted, but reformed were not. So actually, it's no wonder that uh, Princeton is an ecumenical seminary. Uh, it's in the uh, uh, tradition of uh, uh, the 16th century. There's also another point I want to stress. Uh, it has to do with the uh, symbolism uh, in thinking about the Reformation and its heritage. Symbols are extremely important in uh, human life, in our uh, focusing on our own experiences. Symbols always express the way we see things, we see the world. I've, uh, uh, in my teaching, done a whole lot with art history, where in fact, you know, symbols play an immediate uh, uh, role and an immense uh, role indeed. Now, of course, with the Reformation, we, we say 500 years of Reformation this year, and the date, of course, is you know October 31, 1517. That's when the Reformation be began. Well, not so. It's just not so. Uh, just as there's probably no hammer. Uh, there's still a debate going on what happened on the 31st of uh, October 1517. The debate is between nailers and mailers. Uh, the nailers say, yeah, he nailed the thesis. And the mailers said, no, he only sent them to his archbishop, which is at least what we can say because that's a historical fact. But basically, that's a symbolic date. We need symbols. We want to celebrate 500 years, and you know how can you do this? Reformation didn't start in 1517. There were lots of reformations before. The entire 15th century was a century of cry for reform. Uh, 
reform of head and members was uh, the major uh, uh, term there. So we do need uh, symbols. Now, to my uh, feeling, it was a little unfortunate that the German churches, uh, which are the churches at the place where Luther lived and worked, decided that the Reformation celebration should center on Martin Luther. It's not a good idea, because as you well know, Luther said some things in some areas which concern many people in the world, some things that are just simply unacceptable, along with all the good things uh, he said. To make that a center of, of the celebration is perhaps not such a good idea in light of facts like uh, what Ken said. There's a great interest in the uh, other reformations. We should celebrate the other reformations indeed. And basically that's one of the nice things here. We sit here, in fact, to do that. We celebrate not Martin Luther, but we do celebrate all uh, the Reformation uh, experiences. The good thing is that even in Lutheran Germany, there are some signs that things move in this regard. In the city of Wittenberg, that's where Luther uh, basically uh, uh, preached and lived, they started already 10 years ago a large Luther garden. It's a garden where right in the town they started planting trees. And this has become a major project. Congregations all over the world and other churches, denominations, were invited to plant a tree, a Luther tree in that Wittenberg Luther garden, but along with it, they would also plant a tree back home in their church, in their area. And even the Roman Catholic Church came along. A cardinal planted a, a tree, a Luther tree in Wittenberg, and another cardinal planted in Rome, right outside of uh, San Paolo for Le Mure, an olive tree as well. So these trees are signs of the ecumenical oneness of Christianity, which for me is one of the main things today that we need to think about. With all the diversity, with all the charisms, the charisms serve a purpose, namely to stand up for the gospel at a time when a lot of people haven't heard and a lot of people don't want to hear. We are witnesses, and that's basically what the Reformation was. I want to stay with this uh, question of the uh, Reformation tradition in light of ecumenical fervor and resistance. It, it seems to me that when you look at some of the foundational affirmations of the Reformation, among them is that the church exists wherever the word is proclaimed in the sacraments, or faithfully administered. And that's, a, that's an inherently ecumenical statement. The church exists wherever the word is being proclaimed and the sacraments are being administered. That's a definition at the center, rather than the boundaries. Um, whenever the Reformed and Lutheran traditions have gotten in trouble, it's because they started creating boundaries as to who's in and who's out. Um, and that's actually, we could say that's true of all the inheritors of the Reformation. Um, why is that? Why is it that when we have such a, a clear, clean, ecumenical beginning to our history of uh, defining at the center, word proclaimed, sacraments administered, 
Why in the 500 years since then have we continued to see these efforts at creating boundaries that exclude? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Craig, because it's, um, it always puzzles me when you think about the Reformation. It's about the gospel, right? And the gospel is a message of reconciliation. So something that's fundamentally about reconciliation actually leads to the biggest division in the history of, of Western Christianity. Um, that's paradoxical. I'm not sure why that is, uh, but that's, that's not acceptable. And I, I think um, and that's one thing that animates a lot of my work. Um, Carl Fried, you mentioned the early church was also divided or split into a variety of communities, but they were still in communion with each other. And I think that's, that's the difference. Nobody was excommunicating the other churches the, or the other groups. And, and that's where we are today. And I think it's, um, if I can tell a personal story, I frequently attend a, um, uh, an Orthodox uh, service, partly for my work, but also because I like it. Um, and it's, um, you know, and standing there um, at the side of the church while everybody else is taking communion, people you know and you've been worshiping with over the course of time, is actually a difficult thing. Um, and you feel the pain of the separation at that moment when you know, you know, we are all Christians, we're listening to the same word, we're worshiping in a way that we can understand from each other, we're witnessing to each other, and yet we can't receive the sacrament together uh, because of the respective legacies of our churches. Um, there's something wrong with that. Um, and that's just, that's fundamentally unacceptable, particularly when you think about the Reformation as something that is about the gospel. Um, there's nothing more quintessentially Christian really than reconciliation, um, and yet we divide wherever we go. <laughs> And so why, why is that? Um, I'm just rephrasing your question, I think. <laughs> we, we seek reconciliation. Reconciliation is a very problematic term. Reconciliation on whose terms? I'm perfectly willing to be reconciled with my worst enemy as long as he decides to do business my way. Uh, the right way, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. The right way. <laughs> and, and, and so the plea for, so my resistance to being reconciled to my oppressor makes me the problem. Because I'm the one who says, no, we ain't going to do it. It's interesting to me that at some point, the southern stream of the Presbyterian Church in this country and the northern stream of the Presbyterian Church in this country had a reunion. Not a single word of penance was offered by the southern stream for the reason why they found it necessary to leave. And so the church, the Presbyterian church, is built on a very, very rocky foundation, it seems to me, uh, because uh, you can't have reconciliation without penance. And nobody's done penance. I probably have, I'll probably be, I'll probably have to demit for having said that. I don't think so. No, no. Okay. I was actually thinking something similar we have truth and reconciliation. We don't have reconciliation without truth first, at least in the paradigms that, that I know that really work. 
we start by recognizing what we have done that was not right. And I think if we're going back to the radicals and their popularity, with all due respect, they are the um, quintessential boundary makers. Uh, the church is not pure, therefore we must leave. It's not simply uh, a question of how do they model reform for us. They have held up the insistence on discipline, morality, truth, uh, fidelity, whatever you want to call it. I would like to hope, without trying to protect the Reformed tradition unduly, that part of our covenant and squabbling has been a determination to hold on to both the truth and the reconciliation sides of it. We do not do it well. You've given us a very good example of that. No expression of penitence. But it seems to me very clear that there is nothing in our understanding of the church as a, the body of Christ, which is here before we get to it. We do not decide what it is, um, which allows us to create the church on our own terms. It's a given to us. And within the givenness of that, there are arms and legs that we don't like necessarily. And there are things that we have done that we should not have done. And corporately, we have to recognize that. Or we cannot work for reconciliation. I think in the sermon. Dr. Paris, we've wandered into your area on social justice here. We'd love to hear perspective. I, I, I was just going to um, mention Paul Tillich saying at one point um, in his life that um, while we have had over the centuries cultural progress manifested in so many different ways, we have not had moral progress manifested in so many ways. The divisions of the church, churches, the, um, um, the, uh, the wars and struggles between countries and nations and races and genders and so forth. Um, moral progress is, is hardly a work in progress <laughs> uh, for humanity. And uh, that stated theologically is, um, is, is evidence for sin. It is, it is sin. <laughs> um, and how we make some progress in that is, um, remains a question, I think. I want to turn to some of the questions that have uh, come to us from the audience. Um, the first one is, how has the role of the clergy been reformed especially in recent years. Um, let me start with you, uh, Dr. Hansen. You taught in congregational ministries here. How, how have you seen the ongoing reformation of clergy? Huh. 
It depends on where you look. In some places, uh, in, in some situations where, that I've visited, the clergy, have, uh, the role of the clergy, uh, the authority of the clergy has become increasingly entrenched. In other places, the clergy have been challenged to recognize the vocation that other people in that community have, have, have brought to it. Um, the church, people say what's going on in the church. It's, it's not one thing. Um, there are places where uh, people who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have been willing to accept more and more authoritarian and dictatorial leadership because of the reasons that human beings accept authoritarian and dictatorial leadership. Christians ain't no different than other people. Uh, in other places, uh, people who, uh, who, who hear the gospel in a different way have become more and become less and less willing to accept authoritarian and dictatorial leadership and have found uh, themselves in contexts in which the leadership itself has heard the same word and, and is willing to do it. One of the, th one of the problems that I have found uh, in situations in which the vocation, the ministerial vocation of all people in the community has been accepted is the, uh, the unwillingness to accept the probability that being an effective minister requires some kind of preparation. Um, the third wing of the Reformation, in the early Mennonite church in this country, one of the questions that was asked of an adult, because they believed in, uh, in, in, in adult confession, adult baptism, was, would you, on the call of this community, accept the role of pastor? They were very careful who they baptized. You see, uh, another, uh, if a congregation is, if a congregation has to establish a committee to go looking for a pastor to fill a vacant pulpit, that congregation needs to ask itself what it's been doing wrong you raise up your own pastor. Uh, uh, I think we have a lot to learn about ministry from the, the, the Radical Reformation uh, because it was so important to them, they spent a lot of time thinking about it. They didn't accept the whole lot. And, um, okay. The idea, the idea in some parts of the church that if you are called from the pastorate of one congregation to the pastorate of another congregation, you have to be reordained because ordination to serve a community is specific to that community. Boy, that would have saved a whole lot of trouble in a congregation, so I have enough. Um, yeah, okay, I've, I've said enough. What about others on the panel? How, how have you seen trends or changes or 
reforms uh, in the role of clergy. obvious, but women in the pulpit. In my childhood, there were very few. There are now many, many more. I think one of the things that that has also done has suggested that the kinds of qualities that are needed may include more of a pastoral uh, looking after the congregation. I know, obviously, I skip around historically, but in the 16th century, a lot of the pastoral care was preaching. Now there's infinitely more administrative. I'm not sure whether that's a great help or not, but I'm out of my, out of my uh, area of expertise. Let me come back to this question of uh, you know, uh, developments uh, in ministry. Uh, I do remember in the uh, late 60s and 70s and 80s, there was a strong push in the uh, association of theological schools in this country to make the doctorate the uh, main professional degree, the first professional degree. After all, in the medical profession, you know, that's the first professional degree. Uh, in the uh, 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 faculty of law, uh, that's the professional degree. Theologians give uh, uh, theological schools give a professional degree uh, for ministry, so you know why don't why not call it that? Some of you here may remember that Princeton Seminary was at the forefront of fighting this intention. Uh, my dear colleague Seward Hiltner was adamant at this point that that was not the right move. A lot of theological seminaries were clamoring that the association make the doctorates the first professional degree for pastors. After all, Presbyterian pastors wear their hood uh, anyway, and you know, why not give the proper uh, designation to it? No, Seward was very much against that, and he traveled throughout the country. I was with him on a couple of these trips, trying to persuade people that that was not a good idea. That's why, in the long run, uh, well, Princeton leading the way, we won out. And that's why we now have not the BD as the basic uh, theological degree, but an MDiv, a master's degree. It's also the reason why the doctorate in uh, uh, ministry now uh, has been uh, 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 transformed into a degree program of doctrine of ministry, which again, Stuart Hiltner and this seminary pioneered a great deal in. To me, what is at stake uh, there in that development is that we need to realize 
that ministry is not just a profession like other professions. It's something based on a different set of presuppositions. It's a calling, it's a being sent, and it's a being approved by a community for functions of a community, which is the body of Christ. So actually, there's something qualitatively different, not quantitatively different, uh, if you think about what the first professional degree should be. To me, that time of the fight for a compromise in the, the MDiv still is so memorable because it raised the basic question of the self-understanding of the Christian ministry right at a seminary like Princeton, which after all is one of the uh, uh, most important seminaries in the Reformed or in the Protestant tradition. And I wanted to mention uh, that fight because some of you may remember it, and of course it affects all of uh, the uh, graduates of this uh, seminary in the past and in the present. The nomenclature JD for, for lawyers was an economic decision. It was made during the early days of the Second World War when the government was expanding exponentially. And lawyers were not getting the kind of remuneration that they figured, or remuneration, what is it, remuneration? Well, they weren't getting paid what they felt they ought to get paid. And somebody said, well, it's because you don't have the degree. You know, you, if, 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 if you're the equal of these people who are getting paid this money, how come you don't have that title? And that's how the title JD came along. You know, there is, a, there, there is something to Marxism. There is an economic determinism about just about everything. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's very, very funny. I'm going to turn to another question. We live in a very divisive, anxious time. What does the Reformation tradition offer the wider culture? Uh, to come back to the point from before, I mentioned reconciliation. Some of the other speakers talked about penance. Uh, repentance, of course, is part of the reconciliation process. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, we need to be in a spirit of repentance. But I do think what, what distinguishes our churches are our Christian traditions from say, political movements with whom we share many of the same positions and goals um, is that we do have a, uh, uh, that not only the message, but also the means of reconciliation to offer, um, of which repentance, of course, is, is part. But uh, that, that's distinctively Christian, and, and it's something that the Reformation emphasized. Um, otherwise, you know, if we don't remind ourselves of that, um, we're basically just parroting back talking points from the DNC or something else, and it, it's not... There's no reason really to go to church if that's all it's about. Um, if we don't have, if we don't remind ourselves time and again that we've got that, that opportunity um, and, and the instruments for, uh, for achieving reconciliation, I think that has profound social implications if it's done responsibly, by which I mean coupled with repentance. One of the problems I think is that churches tend to be very homogeneous, and the world 
is not homogeneous. And the question is, how does the churches, how do the churches um, take note of that and do something about it? I, I think there's been, the, the, the ecumenical movement was an attempt um, in, in one way to overcome these kinds of borders or boundaries that, uh, that kept churches divided. Um, but yet it wasn't successful and has, cannot be successful unless the local and uh, the units that make up the ecumenical body reflect something of the ecumenical spirit. Now it seems to me that there is maybe something like this going on in the culture at large when we find a, 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 a lessening of denominational structures in our day. And increasingly, students are coming into ministry even. When asked about their background, they will say non-denominational or something that indicates that they have not yet um, embraced or wanting to embrace that kind of, of structural division. Now, where that's gleading uh, is still an open question, I think, in terms and, and sort of how the churches are dealing about that as they are sort of losing members, have been losing members for a long while, but um, not quite yet been able to deal with that issue of, um, of why the, um, the loss of mem members, why we're seeing something like the end of denominationalism in, in sight, and sort of what will the new form be that Christianity will take. That, I think, is all it's still in the making. I, I don't have the figures to back this up, but my suspicion, I, I think my experience has taught me that many students uh, who come here come to their vocation out of uh, non-congregational settings, which is strange. Uh, they come... They hear the voice when they're in college. You know, they feel called to them. They, and it's, it's, it's strange in classes in congregational ministry to be talking to people who intend to be pastors who have never had a significant congregational experience. A, a congregational life is terra incognita to them. Uh, when I was a sophomore uh, in college, I, the director of religious activities or the chaplain, uh, that's the significant person. So you, you're sending people who have zilch experience or at best a lukewarm experience with the life of a congregation out to be pastors of congregations. Um, and sometimes it works very, very well. It's like It's like it's like a golf pro told me once, well, at least I don't have to unlearn you all the bad stuff. 
It's, it's significant uh, at the seminary now that the percentage of Presbyterians has dropped below a third uh, of our student body. And the next number, uh, next group uh, represented is non-denominational. So that continues to be the growing portion of our students. That's, and that gets to the trends that Dr. Paris was talking about. But I want to return to this question of anxiety and social anxiety, which seems um, so prominent now. It's in the op-ed pages, it's in the, the talking head shows, uh, on the news programs, it's in politics, it's in the church, uh, it's in schools, uh, kind of an, an edginess, uh, a, a quickness to argument, uh, a quickness to division, uh, quickness to us and them thinking. Now, one of the things I learned when I studied his church history is that, uh, as, as one of my professors says, um, when you study in the documents of history, it's clear that the world is always coming to an end for every generation. Uh, and, and so this may be one of those as well, and maybe we, our study of history can, can calm us down a little bit. But is there not something within the Reformation that can help? Something out of the Reformation traditions that has something to say to society about the anxiousness in which uh, our, our culture is just plagued. Well, I would say it's not a comfortable truth that we have to learn from the Reformation in this regard. As we all know, uh, the church from the very beginning experienced anxiety, persecution. In the Reformation time, Luther and his adherents were not the uh, people uh, making triumphant entries everywhere as victors, or the way you know, uh, the Constantinian uh, Christians did uh, early on. Luther's own message was the cross. Do remember the cross. We are called not to triumph over others. No, we are called to witness to the cross in our own lives, in the life of our church, and as a witness to the world. That means uh, anxiety is nothing to be afraid of. Being reduced in status from a state church to a minority is nothing to be afraid of. Because after all, it's not us who grow the church or who diminish the church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And to me, that's one of the reasons why thinking of Luther as a symbol of what Reformation is, is not wrong. With all due respect to all the other Reformations, you know, Luther was a minority. He was very much plagued by the idea, what am I doing? Am I actually reducing uh, the reality of Christianity, a powerful thing, to something that's tiny, little? 
Well, when he wrote his hymns, you know, the hymns of Luther show that he was worried that the end of the world was first of all going to be the end of his movement. Well, let's face it, we are in a real dire situation in terms of what the uh, uh, main uh, churches are. We should rejoice in any new beginnings that are there. Uh, you know, Reformation does need renovatio. Something new can happen. And we can surely hope for it. We can work for it, even in our smaller contexts. In the world, there's enough growth of Christianity to be uh, uh, assured God is at work. God may call for, you know, uh, reformation back home in ways we haven't even anticipated yet. Maybe our mainline churches have to learn from the not-so-mainline churches, uh, you know, not only on ministry, on other things as well. And to me, there's basically nothing wrong under Christian presuppositions about this anxiety. Uh, you know, anxieties of the nature of Christianity. The cross is at the center of it, and it's the cross which was canceled by the resurrection. Yeah, that's basically what we believe in. So, uh, you know, the anxiety question doesn't bother me as much as it probably bothers a lot of other people. One of the things that occurs to me is that anxiety is very, very evident in our society now. But that's a little bit like a new development in certain ways for us as a culture. At least that's our perspective on it. I remember at 9-11, people thinking the world had come to an end. Something incredible had happened. Most of the people in much of the world, particularly the southern part of the world, have lived with this for centuries. What, what can we learn from them? I'm in regular contact with people in Congo almost daily in the political and economic situation falling apart in the fighting in the place where I grew up, where hundreds have been killed, hundreds and hundreds and thousands are, have fled homes, displaced orphans. How do they go on? They go on by prayer and faith. I think I should have started talking about the legacy of the Reformation, and not just the Protestant, but also the Catholic reforming movements, the radical reforming movements, by talking about 
the sheer gift of the witness of Christians in other parts of the world. The radicalness of their faith and their trust in the face of things that we can't really imagine most of the time. I will say that people living in the inner city may have a very good idea where the color of your skin means that you are liable to be shot. But in most of our suburban areas, we don't have a clue. How do we look at the anxiety? How do we respond to it? We respond to it with the preaching of the gospel, but with the witness of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who haven't given up on the gospel, whose faith and prayer, whenever I'm talking with my best friend in Congo about the incredible problems they're facing, she says, we will pray. We trust God. Doesn't mean she's not doing everything in her power. And I'm trying to follow along behind doing what's in my power. But her confidence is in God and trust that God hears prayer. And every day, I hold that up to myself and I say, I can't possibly give up on the anxieties around me. Not a chance. When I've got that kind of witness to Christ's living power. Well, it may well be that God is. Maybe that God is very active in that situation. Um, the unfortunate thing about my relations with God, and it's his fault, it's God's fault. God refuses to do things the way I would do them. I would never have tried this Jesus thing. I mean, any fool would know that ain't going to work. Um, we, uh, we tend, I think, to identify progress and good living or whatever you want to call it with the way that we have decided we would be most comfortable and are, are, are reluctant to be led into a more simple, into a more simple thing. I, I'm not sure where that goes, so I better shut up before I get in trouble. But I, I suspect it's, it's, it, it's, whenever I, um, there, there are many times when I get myself all frazzled and all upset about the way things are going and Mother Hansen says, oh, let it go, let it go, let God. I generally am better off when I follow her advice than I am when I don't. Speaking of anxiety, let's talk about the decline of the Presbyterian Church. It's a question from the audience. What is it from the, 
Reformed and Reformation traditions that need to start happening in order for the church to find its own reformation and its own renewal, uh, renovatio of the church itself? I, I think there was a, <clears throat> there was a movement in the 1960s with uh, Gutierrez, James Cone, and others uh, called Liberation Theology. And Liberation Theology was dismissed largely by uh, established churches, more established churches, as being outside of the, uh, of, of, of the margins and not to be taken so seriously. Whereas it seems to me that liberation theology was doing exactly what, uh, what Elsie and, and Carl Fried have been referencing about the Reformation, um, looking at the voices of the most vulnerable peoples in our society and what faith means to them. Because faith is a gift from God. It is not something that is developed by humans. And, uh, and the people who know this best are the people who are the most vulnerable and calling upon God's grace and its self-ethic uh, work uh, in their lives. And it seems to me that that's what the churches should be about. Uh, who amongst the most, who are the most vulnerable and what does the faith mean to them individually and, uh, and as groups? And, uh, and, and that will affect a, the, the kind of reformation, the ongoing reformation that, uh, that we need. I was reading a, a, a journal in sociology of religion many, many years ago, and it was poo-pooing the impact of liberation theology. He said, uh, theologians and scholars and the like make a lot of liberation theology because it speaks an academic language with which they are familiar. And that if you really want to see the work of God the work of the spirit among people, you go to the base communities where uh, theology is not particularly something that people get excited about. As a matter of fact, it's, uh, I remember my father-in-law lamented when my wife told him I was going to divinity school. He, uh, he said that he's going to go up there to that school. They're going to learn all the religion out of him. Uh, but at, at any rate, uh, we make a lot about liberation theology because that's the language we speak. We know how to talk about that. How to talk about the base communities, about not academics together talking, but people living together. Maybe that's what we need to find a way to uh, think about, uh, to live with, um, at any rate. And that's not original. I can I can find the book to blame it on. Craig, I was. Uh, it's funny you should ask because I'm not Presbyterian, as some people know. But I was by by chance in a Presbyterian church this past Sunday. It doesn't happen very often, but um, in this one, uh, I don't know if it's a base community. It's one of the local ones, <laughs> at any rate. And um, I was jotting down notes as I sat there. 
um, thinking the impressions that were coming over. I mean, this was a service dedicated to music. Uh, it was Mother's Day service, and, uh, and they, so they elevated music uh, sort of atypically uh, to you know the focal point of the, of the service. And yet, despite that, there was an awful lot of talking. Um, I mean, talking all the time. Every time the, the musicians would play something, and the, then the pastor would feel the need to talk for 10 minutes, and then, and then the musicians would have to play another two minutes, and then the pastor would talk. Um, and uh, this is part of the uh, sort of, I think, a criticism in a sense. There's, there's a danger of too much talk, and here we all, all are talking right in this panel. Uh, it's probably better than if we sang, uh, but it's still uh, a different, um, uh, there's an emphasis there that probably needs to be adjusted somewhat, or we're just talking into space. Um, but then on a positive note, as I was listening to this and sort of looking around, I was seated up in a balcony, so I had a good view uh, of, of everybody, and, and there was something sort of comforting about this Presbyterian congregation to me. There's a kind of a, uh, this may sound glib, but sort of a solidity to it, you know, the, um, reliability, I think you'd say. And it made me think of um, the fact that we've gone through a period in our country's history for the past 30 years or so where we've been very anti-institutional. Um, and I think the mainline churches are taking a hit out of that kind of cultural reaction. But I wonder if it's not coming, if, we're, if the pendulum isn't starting to swing back. Um, and I wonder if the moment of Presbyterianism isn't just perhaps right ahead when people realize I mean, what's holding this country together right now are the institutions um, and the fact that we can rely on them in ways that we didn't think we could or didn't, didn't need to uh, prior to that. And, um, and I found something profoundly reassuring uh, sitting in that Presbyterian uh, service, all my uh, jokes aside, as a Lutheran, <laughs> I'm allowed a few of these, but I, you know, I, I think that's, that, that's, that points to a different future. I think this is a, a, a gift that that tradition has uh, that's going to be in increasing demand. I'd like to add just one point to that, Ken. Shaped by my friend uh, Mama Monique in Congo. To say that we go to the base does not mean all the tools to handle what is coming at them. They have the inspiration, perhaps, I'm sure, not, not perhaps. But watching Mama Monique, she is highly educated by the standards of her culture. She's actually a very well-educated woman, but particularly in Congo. And her, her mediation of what she knows to the people who need it for implementation, and to use it catchphrase, her capacity building for them, helping them with consciousness raising, with figuring out how they can make use of what is in their hands to deal with their situation. And I guess maybe that helps me see afresh the richness and worthwhileness of our educating clergy. Maybe we haven't done it perfectly. There are all kinds of things. We're still preparing people for an earlier church. But it doesn't say that we shouldn't be preparing people because they need to be able to bring together the congregations and the people at the 
base level who have these needs with some of the tools, for example, congregational ministries that um, Dr. Geddes has been teaching, so that they have the means to address their situation. And in some ways, that has been, for me, a, a reassuring, strengthening perspective on the usefulness of what we're trying to do as long as we can shape our perspective, shape our ministry to draw those together and not think we have all the answers. But we have a very useful role. Thank you. That's a good segue to my last question. Um, in my experience, historians hate to be asked about the future. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, describe where you think the Reformation is heading over the next 50 years. I, did, I could have asked for 500. This is a modest question. Right. Well, that reminds me of... Uh, uh, the problem with the word Reformation itself. You know, in the history of uh, the church, uh, Reformation is not a biblical word. The uh, uh, Latin word uh, reformare, to, you know, reform, that is biblical, and it translates metamorpheo, uh, to uh, transform. Uh, I think in the history of the, uh, of the church, the term Reformation always had the two aspects. The one aspect uh, was, you know, renovation uh, is part of Reformation, which means something new has to be done, and something new will come about. Very biblical uh, uh, understanding indeed. But on the other hand, Reformation also could mean, and for uh, the uh, greater part of the early church and the early medieval church, it meant going back to the beginnings, going back to where we were, re formare, means uh, to form yourself as you were. So uh, in the plight of our churches these days, we need to remember that indeed, there are both sides to it. We are indebted to generations before us. We are called upon not to lose our heritage. Uh, the problem of the Presbyterian Church is not that it's not modern enough. Uh, no, the problem is that it may have to think again of being faithful to the beginnings because whatever is done afresh What's done anew, this other side of Reformation, is basically not done by our gimmicks or by our new invented methods or anything like this. No, it's what God wants to be done. Our hands do God's work. And I think basically if we kind of concentrate again on what the essence of our own identity always has been, and that means not just as Presbyterians, Lutherans, or Roman Catholics, no, as Christians, in a world today 
where we start becoming the minority of religion even, well, uh, means concentrating on this and waiting for the new things to come, which God will do. And I'm very confident God will do something through us, certainly. We are not off the hook, but it's not our work in the long run. On that very hopeful note, I want to thank each of you for joining us today. You've uh, spent much of your lives teaching our students, and today you taught us all, and we are very grateful to you. I also want to uh, thank uh, the audience for listening in on this conversation and for participating in it by adding your own questions and invite you to continue conversing with each other. I believe coffee is being served out on the quad and we hope that you have a blessed day. Take care.